you're listening to a City on a Hill podcast. We'd love you to use and share this podcast, but please refrain from editing the content without permission from City on a Hill. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. Well, it is uh, good to be back here again to uh, bring God's word to you as part of this series in Colossians, Jesus Over All. So let me pray. Our gracious God, your word is light and life. Shine its light in our hearts, we pray, so that we may live for the glory of Jesus Christ. Amen. Now you may have noticed in September, uh, if you were paying attention, that the Queen died. Uh, It was easy to miss, I'm sure. In fact, for a few days, it's all we heard about. And you would have seen, probably, or heard, uh, endless interviews with people who had, you know, some thoughts about the Queen dying. Uh, For example, everybody in Queensland had a link because of Queensland, so they were all interviewed about their connection to the Queen. One of the common threads of all those interviews, or many of them, was... The Queen has always been there. And if you're about 10 years older than me or younger, then that's true. That is, we've never known another monarch. I mean, even now when I hear King Charles, I think of a spaniel before I think of the the monarch. The Queen has always been there for us. We've never known another monarch. In three weeks' time, as Nick said, in 21 sleeps, or 42 sleeps, if you're lucky, uh, it's Christmas. I actually count 22 sleeps because uh, the day I look forward to is Boxing Day when I can recover and go to the MCG. (laughs) And on the 25th, you may sing Happy Birthday to Jesus, as though this is when Jesus begins. Well, you could do it in you know, March for his conception, potentially. But it's as if we often think Christmas is the beginning of Jesus, really. So we, we sing his birth. Uh, yes, we recognize conceived in Nazareth, born in Bethlehem. Jesus enters the world to save the world. Uh, we know that very well. Unlike the Queen, a tragically short life on earth, 30 years thereabouts. But what this passage in Colossians and the wider passage that you've already begun to look at the last two weeks is telling us is that the tiny hands of the Bethlehem baby were the same hands that flung stars into space 
thousands, millions, whatever it was, years before the first Christmas. Those tiny hands that maybe built things in Joseph's workshop were the same hands that or had already built the universe. The hands born in Bethlehem are the same ones later surrendered to cruel nails. What we need to see and be reminded about is that the Jesus born in Bethlehem doesn't start there. He doesn't start with the announcement of the angel to Mary nine months before the first Christmas either. Because Jesus has always been there. In a far bigger, greater way than the Queen of England has always been there for those who are 70 years old or younger. Jesus has indeed always been there and not just for a platinum jubilee either. He's been there from before the beginning. Before Genesis 1 verse 1, before God said, let there be light in Genesis 1 verse 3, Jesus was already there. He came first. Before all things is what today's verse, verse 17, says. Before all things in both time and superiority was Jesus. So the verse that we're looking at today in the heart of this passage, this paragraph that you're looking at in these weeks, and he, Jesus, is before all things, and in him all things hold together. That's it. That's today's text. One of the great heresies of the early church was called Arianism. Arius, after whom it was named, argued that there was once when he was not. That is, that Jesus was not first. Now, we might think, oh, that's an old heresy and we're done with that. But actually, that heresy lives on in different forms all the time. Those religious cranks who knock at your door, if you live in a door that can be knocked on, uh, will usually have a form of Arianism. That is, that Jesus is not preeminent first of all things. And there are variations, you know, the Jehovah's Witnesses or the Mormons or all this sort of stuff basically diminish Jesus. The Bible never does that. Their distorted versions of the Bible might. But the true version of the Bible doesn't do that. And so the Arian heresy, there was once when he was not, still exists in different forms, even to this day. And it will probably exist until Jesus returns in glory, I suspect. So at the beginning of today's verse... Paul is summarizing, in a way, what he's already said and you've seen over the last two weeks. That is, and Jesus is before all things. In fact, the way the Greek is written, it actually emphasizes the pronoun he. You can do it in Greek sort of just, it's sort of there, but, but it's highlighted. He, Jesus, is before all things. Paul is drawing attention to that as a little summary of the preceding two verses that you've already seen. And I think it was last week, uh, the, whoever preached, was it Nick or was it Andrew? Nick, last week. Um, referred back to John chapter 1, verse 1. You may know that in Matthew and Luke's Gospels, 
In a sense, the story begins with Bethlehem or Nazareth. But John takes us a little bit before that. In fact, a lot before that. He takes us in the beginning was the Word. And goes on to say, and the Word became flesh. It's not that the Word began in Bethlehem. The Word was pre-existent. That is Jesus. He existed from before all things, right at the beginning. He took on flesh later. That's what Christmas is about, not the beginning of Jesus. And so John 1 is saying what Paul is saying here in effect. He is before all things. There was never a time when he was not. He's always been there. In Jesus' life and ministry, he at one point was debating with hostile Jewish leaders who were criticizing him and diminishing him. And Jesus said to them, before Abraham was, I am. That's in John 8, for example. And, uh, and what Jesus was saying to them is again this idea. I was there. I was there, in fact, before Abraham. He actually, by saying before Abraham was, I am, is picking up and alluding to the name for God in the Old Testament, which in Old English was translated as Jehovah. Often in our, uh, we might use Yahweh now. And that's what Yahweh is, I am, in effect. And so Jesus is acknowledging his own divinity implicitly in that statement to the Jewish leaders. But the point for here is he was there. He hasn't just arrived on the scene in you know, 0 AD, which wasn't ever a year anyway, but rather he was there when Abraham was there, and he was there before Abraham. That is, these Jewish leaders who are so critical of Jesus do not get not just his divinity, they don't get his, his uh, pre-existence, that he was there right from the beginning. The night before he was crucified, Jesus prayed, and that prayer recorded for us in John 17. And Jesus prays, Father, glorify me with the glory I had with you before the world began. Before the world began. Before Genesis chapter 1. Jesus was there. The old creed of which we still say in maybe modern English these days, begotten of the Father before all worlds. That is, before anything was made by God, there was Jesus with God the Father. That's what Paul's saying, but it's not a novel idea. It's there elsewhere as well in Scripture. When you read the Old Testament and you read the name Lord, that's the usual translation in our English Bibles, usually with little capitals, the name behind that word is Yahweh, Jehovah. Who do we think of when we read, the Lord said this, the Lord did that, all the way through the Old Testament? The easy thing for us to do is to think, that's God the Father, and the Son comes later. Because if we know our Bibles well, we know that the Old Testament leads us to Jesus and points to Jesus, and that Jesus' coming is like the fulfillment of the Old Testament. Now, there's some truth in that. But actually, the truth is, is more profound and deeper. Because the God of the Old Testament is not just God the Father, it's the triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit. And when the Lord does this or says that, when Yahweh does this or says that, there's Jesus as well. 
He's not out of the picture all the way through the Old Testament. It's true that the Old Testament leads us to Jesus in the flesh, but Jesus is there through the pages of the Old Testament as well. And we see that because in the New Testament, quite often we get Old Testament quotes referring to Yahweh that are applied to Jesus. Not that Jesus now comes on the scene to fulfill them so much as they're about Jesus right from the start. He was there. He's always been there. And so our reading of that name for God through the Old Testament makes us, it should make us realize that we're dealing with a triune God from the very beginning, before all worlds were made. Jesus has always been there. I remember as a young boy trying to fathom this, this not so much the idea of Jesus' pre-existence, but the idea of what was first, and sort of you know, looking out into the sky, lying in bed, thinking, what came first in this universe? And the Bible's answer for that is very simple and very clear. It's God. And the God who was first is the God who then and now is Father, Son, and Spirit. It's not that the Spirit was created later, and it's certainly not that Jesus entered existence much later either. They were all there. Jesus has always been there. Now, I hope that we get that, and I hope we understand it. I hope it might transform some of the reading of the Old Testament as well. But that's Paul's summary at the beginning, the first half, if you like, of verse 17, today's text. Countless times over the years, people say to me things like, I really feel close to God when? And usually they don't say Chadston Shopping Centre. <laughs> and usually, in fact, they don't even say church. I feel close to God when I'm on the beach or in the forest, or somehow in nature. Beaches, trees, mountains, whatever it might be. At its worst, there's a sort of pagan pantheism there, perhaps, as if God is in the trees and in the sand and in the water, as somehow nature sort of reveals to us the presence of God more than anything else. In the polytheistic Greco-Roman world, there were all sorts of different gods for aspects of nature, you know, gods of sun and thunder and rain and all that sort of thing. Same in the ancient uh, Middle Eastern gods of uh, the Canaanites, the Egyptians, and, and others as well. But Paul is teaching us that Jesus is not in those things. He's above them. He created them. He's the creator. We saw, you saw that last week, especially in verse 16. But Jesus is before all things. He's not in them. We don't believe, we're not pantheists where God is in everything, but rather God made everything, created everything. He's not in the tree or the water. He made it. And we need to be careful about what our feelings might be. I suspect that people just feel pleasant when they're in nature. And they confuse that with somehow thinking they're closer to God then. Among the reflections at the Queen's death, just in case you didn't notice that she died, 
was the reflection on the decline of her empire. When she became queen, in effect, uh, maybe just a little bit before that was the pinnacle, but you know, they say the sun never set on the British Empire. And the old traditional uh, maps of the world would colour the British Empire countries in pink for some reason. But of course now the British Empire is gone, the Commonwealth is fragile at best, and our whole world is in fact fragmenting and falling apart. There's something like 25% more countries in the last 50 years than there were, say, after the Second World War, that sort of thing. Our world is fragile and falling apart. Empires rise and fall, but even the strongest ones in our world today are fairly fragile. We recognize a world in which climate looks as though it's a bit of out of control. We're descending, we would say, some would say, into a sort of moral chaos in the West. Where are we heading? Where is this universe going? Common enlightenment thinking likened God to a watchmaker. He makes the watch, he winds the watch, he lets it be, and he walks away. And the watch ticks and keeps going. And there are many, I think, who think they're Christians but have that view of God. That somehow God is the watchmaker, the world is just ticking, and God has relinquished authority and control and just stood back. But that's not biblical Christianity. That's deism, where there is a God, but not a God who is actively overseeing and involved and engaged with the world that he made. Deism is a view that God made it, but that's it. But Paul in this verse, verse 17, goes on to say not only is Jesus before all things, that is referring to the fact that he created everything, but through him or in him, all things hold together. That's the end of verse 17 that we're looking at, in fact, today. Now, deism has an attraction to it. That is, if we think deistically, it helps us understand why the world is such a mess. God made it good, put it there, walked away, and, well, we're the ones that have created the mess, and don't blame God because he's no longer involved. But actually, of course, as I say, that's not the biblical view. In Jesus, all things hold together. All things cohere. He's like the glue that keeps it together in some way or other. How do we reconcile that with a world that is fragmented and fragile and seems to be plunging into you know, moral and climate uh, problems and so on? And yet Paul is saying that this fallen, fragile, broken world somehow coheres, holds together in Christ, not in science or philosophy or politics, but in Christ. Jesus is the one who holds the universe together. The universe is not self-sufficient, like a deist view. Leave it there, God walks away, it self-sufficiently keeps on ticking. As one writer puts it, Jesus is the one who keeps the cosmos from becoming chaos. 
So we could say out of this verse things like, without Jesus, gravity is not switched on. Without Jesus, planets don't orbit. Without Jesus, the sun doesn't rise. Without Jesus, electrons do, don't do whatever they do do, if they do anything. I don't know, really. Without Jesus, the universe falls apart. We're held together by him in some way or other. And notice this verse, the second half of verse 17, is saying that in him, all things hold together. The little word all is actually a, an emphatic word all the way through Colossians chapter 1. It occurs numerous times. In English, sometimes it's all or every. Uh, English translations will vary how it comes out. That is, all things hold together. It's not just the good things that hold together, but all things somehow hold together. This verse is a present tense. It's not referring back to something in the past. Yes, God, Jesus involved, created all things then, but now we're talking about the present. And even if we look around a sort of chaotic world to a degree, Jesus holds all things together. That is, God is no watchmaker. God made it and keeps on holding it together, sustaining it, we might say. But this verse, I think, is saying more than merely Jesus sustains the universe. That's often how we interpret this. But I think he's also saying more than that. The holding all things together, the coherence of this universe is not just about sustaining it, keeping it going so there's air to breathe and water to drink not just at that level, but rather that this whole universe has purpose and meaning and therefore a goal, a destination, because of Jesus. What gives this universe meaning? Jesus. What gives this universe purpose? That's Jesus. And you'll see that in the next two weeks, I guess. Because the climax of this passage, where this verse is now beginning to point to, having summarized the first two, this verse is like a hinge leading into the rest, is that in Jesus, all things are reconciled to God. So the coherence of our universe is evident and will be evident in the reconciliation ultimately of all things, not just human souls, in God, by Jesus and in particular by his death on the cross. So amid all this confusion in which we live, our world coheres towards the fulfillment, the purpose, the goal that is all brought about by Jesus Christ. It's an astonishing statement, really. You know, polytheism doesn't provide universal coherence. Polytheism is having lots of gods. So the wars of the Greek gods fighting against each other shows the incoherence of their worldview of polytheism. And of course, some of you may have come out of backgrounds where there's the, the millions, the multitudes of Hindu deities. There's not much coherence there. Pantheism doesn't provide a universal coherence either. If God is limited in nature, God is in the trees and the animals and all that sort of stuff, but yet we see nature often in conflict with itself. That doesn't give us an ultimate coherence. Secular humanism doesn't either, despite what modern Western politics is on about. We see the triumph of humanity as espoused by Western secular humanism, 
But the evidence is conflict, chaos, corruption, climate confusion, and lots of other words beginning with other letters as well. The tribal, the international conflicts and so on that are so evident in our world, they didn't end in 1918 as everybody thought it would do with the war to end all wars because there have been more wars and more fatalities of war ever since then. It's only Jesus who provides the ultimate coherence for our universe. And it doesn't mean that we walk out of here and our universe is coherent in a good sense and everything is perfect and hunky-dory, but rather this verse is pointing us to the goal, to the destination of this whole universe, a destination secured by the cross where all things are reconciled to God in him. All things hold together because he created them. All things hold together because he still sustains them. And all things hold together because his death reconciles all things to God. So why does Paul go into this? You may have heard glimpses of this in the last two weeks and probably more glimpses to come. But it is important that we see the flow of what's being said whenever we read any Bible verse. Paul had earlier told the Colossians that he gave thanks for them, for their faith, and he prays for them. And at the heart of his prayer for them are these words. From the day we heard of it, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of God's will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him. Paul's prayer is that they grow in their knowledge of God's will so that not just they have knowledge in their head and they can say what is God's will, but so that they lead lives worthy of him in all things. The word all keeps recurring in the same prayer that Paul tells them that he prays for. And then he goes on to this passage that you've already been looking at the last two weeks and will do so for the next two as well. Jesus overall is foundational to mature Christian faith and practice. If we are to lead lives worthy of the Lord in all things, we need to grasp this foundation for such living. That is, this paragraph is not merely about our intellectual understanding, our knowledge, that's part of it, and Paul prays that for these Colossians. But it's about leading a life worthy of the Lord, in effect, in all things. You see, God's will, we could express in a summary form, is to reconcile all things together in Christ, where this paragraph is leading to. God's will is that Jesus, who created all things, sustains all things, and is the goal and coherence of all things, he's the Lord of everything, of all things. And God's will is that this Jesus, who holds all things together, is the one under whom we submit in all things, times, places, and ways. So how does this connect then to this prayer of Paul that by your understanding of God's will, 
that is Jesus overall, you will lead a life worthy of the Lord. Because there is no part, <clears throat> there is no part of life or this universe, whether in time or space, that is outside the Lordship of Jesus. He was before all things. He's always been there. We can't go back and find that 71 years ago, before the Platinum Jubilee sort of thing, he wasn't there. He was there. And he was there before that, and before that, and before that, and before Abraham. He was there. So that is, there is no place in time where Jesus is absent and not Lord of all things. And this Jesus, the same Jesus is exercising his lordship today, sustaining this universe and bringing it to its climax in being reconciled to God in all things. So that means for us, there is no time or place where we are outside the lordship of Jesus Christ. He's not merely the lord of our religious life on a Sunday morning or a midweek Bible study group. That is, he's Lord of our life at every moment of our life and wherever we may be, whether we're in nature or not in nature. Jesus is Lord of everything. And what that means is that absolutely everything, all things in our life, are to be lived under the Lordship of Jesus Christ. How we spend our money is to be governed by the Lordship of Jesus. How we spend our time is to be governed by the Lordship of Jesus Christ. How we speak to our work colleagues, our fellow students, to our family members, is to be governed by the Lordship of Jesus Christ. What we surf on the internet in the privacy of our own room is to be governed by the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Our diligence at work and our rest each week are to be governed by the Lordship of Jesus Christ. The language that we use on social media or anti-social media is to be governed by the Lordship of Jesus Christ. But it's not just our actions either. It's the growth of our character that lies underneath those actions. The growth of our character of generosity, kindness, Patience, self-control, gentleness, humility, and a whole range of other aspects of character. That is, our character is to be under the lordship of Jesus Christ in all things. Not just in this category or in this relationship or in this activity, but in everything we are and we do. See, Paul is stressing here that Jesus is over all. There's no exception to the word all. He was before all things. There's no exception to that. He sustains all things and coheres all things. There's no exception to that. And therefore, there's no exception within our own life that we would be outside the lordship of Jesus Christ. And because the lordship of Jesus is leading us to a glorious destination of the reconciliation of all things through his cross. We in particular will be people of hope, one of the themes in Colossians chapter 1, 
We are people of hope. Paul gives thanks for their hope back in verse 5. He speaks about ministry in hope in verse 23 and later in chapter 1 as well. And woven through chapter 1 and through the rest of this letter as a whole, people of thankfulness and joy. It's easy not to be thankful and not to be joyful in this fallen, futile, frustrated world. It's easy to forget that Jesus is actually sustaining all things and bringing them to their conclusion and purpose. But because he is and he's guaranteed it by the cross, we are to remain people of joy and thankfulness and hope, which will mark us out as very different, I think, from those who live in darkness round about us. So in the end, this statement, this verse in this paragraph is not an abstract theological statement. It is actually something for our practical living to urge the Colossians and us that all that we do in any time and any space is to be worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him. Whatever you do, Paul goes on to say in chapter 3, whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that even over this fallen, fractured world, Jesus is sovereign and Lord of all things, from before time to the end of time in every place. And we pray that you will bring more and more radically our lives under him in all our words, our deeds, our thoughts, and our character, that we may lead lives fully pleasing to him, in every way. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au.